are listening to the Savvy Black Birther Podcast, the show that brings you all things Black birth, where listeners are educated, uplifted, and empowered into action. With your host, Takiya Sakina Ballard, licensed midwife. Welcome, Savvy family, to another episode of the Savvy Black Bertha podcast. My name is Takia Sakina Ballard, and I am your host. And I am so excited to bring you guys yet another topic. This topic is about uterine fibroids. And I know that uterine fibroids is something that many of you may be experiencing, um, or you may even know someone who has dealt with uterine fibroids. I know I do and I've dealt with them personally myself. So I want you to sit back and as I always say, have a cup of tea and listen to what we have to, and listen to our featured guest talk about her experiences with uterine fibroids and the many things that you can do as a listener to help heal yourself as well. Enjoy. Latoya Dwight is a mother, wife, sister, friend, and driven employees benefits consultant living in Atlanta, Georgia. She created the fibroid pandemic as an answer to the frustrations she experienced during her own journey with uterine fibroids. Latoya learned she had fibroids during what she thought was a routine visit to her OBGYN. During an ultrasound to locate her IUD, the ultrasound technician asked Latoya, how her fibroids were coming along. Not knowing what fibroids were, let alone that she had them, Latoya was in shock. She spoke with her OBGYN, asked questions, and shared her concerns. Her doctor's response was, fibroids are like kudzu. You cut them away and they just grow right back. Latoya's OBGYN immediately recommended that she get a hysterectomy. From entering the office for a routine procedure to receiving news that she might have her womb removed all in the same visit, Latoya was overwhelmed. The option her doctor presented to her didn't sit well and Latoya made the choice to empower herself. She embarked on a four year long and counting journey of researching fibroids. She made healthy lifestyle changes and chose to undergo a minimally invasive medical treatment, uterine fibroid embolization. After her UFE, that's uterine fibroid embolization for short, after that procedure, Latoya shared her fibroid experience on her personal Facebook page. She received an overwhelming response to her story and felt that God was calling her to help other women. Following many brainstorming sessions with her husband, she founded the Fibroid Pandemic to do something she's passionate about, and that is to help women heal from fibroids. Latoya Dwight earned a Bachelor's of Business Administration degree from DeVry University. She holds a Master of Science in Management from Troy University. Latoya enjoys spending time with her family and girlfriends. And when she's not working, she enjoys listening to music, going on nature hikes, and working out. Latoya believes that there is good in everyone and is inspired by witnessing people overcome seemingly unfathomable obstacles. Welcome, Latoya, to the show. 
Thank you so much, Sakia. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Yes, I'm excited to have this, you know, podcast be aired and the content that we're going to talk about because it's so important. So tell me a little bit about your experience and, you know, the the work that you're doing with the the fibroid pandemic that you have, your Instagram presence and how you became a person who's championing the cause and coming to this work. Yeah. So first and foremost, before we get started, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for the opportunity um, I appreciate your interest in just wanting to speak to me and mm-hmm. take it lightly. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. So the way that I got into the womb wellness realm is based on my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. So, um, gosh, I wish I had like a whole freaking millions of hours to talk about it because I truly could. But what I want to do is let's just take it back to my original diagnosis, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Perfect. So for me, it started when I went to go get my IUD replaced. At the time, I was going to my OBGYN for about 12 and a half years. So, you know, you have a really good relationship with her, right? So um, when I went to go get my IUD replaced, for whatever reason, they were unable to locate it. So they sent me over to ultrasound to try to locate it via ultrasound. The ultrasound tech, they performed a topical ultrasound. So they did a vaginal ultrasound and it was right there front and center. But the ultrasound tech, she goes, you know, hey, I do see the IUD, but how are your fibroids coming along? And I go, what's that? Never knew prior to then that I had uterine fibroids. And I'm the type of person who goes to my doctor annually, faithfully. Um, I will admit that I have not gone in a year and maybe a year and a half because of COVID. But prior to that, I would go to my doctor to have my annual OBGYN checkup regularly. Mm-hmm. The year that I had uterine fibroids where it was a bit of a surprise to me, especially knowing um, that I had not been previously diagnosed with it. My clothes back on, I go back into the suite with, doc- with the doctor. Now, mind you, this is all within the same exact doctor visit. So maybe over an hour, hour and a half max. So I go back in there with my with my doctor and she goes, well, yeah, we saw some, uh, you know, fibroids on the ultrasound and uh, I recommend you get a hysterectomy. And I go, OK, wait, time out. <laughs> so by profession, I am an employee benefits consultant. So what that means is that I negotiate business to business contracts with insurance carriers on behalf of employers. So I'm doing big contracts, multimillion dollar contracts with Blue Cross Blue Shield, Anthem. United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, mm-hmm. on behalf of companies who have anywhere between maybe 250 employees up to 5,000 employees. So I said that to say that sometimes I may have a bird's eye view on these doctor visits because a CEO of a, co- of a company, they may call say, hey, look, you sold us this contract, but my wife is in the hospital. They're telling us that we don't have any coverage. Then I have to reach out to the carrier and say, hey, look, you need to update your system. So with that being said, I know that a hysterectomy is a major surgery. Now, remember, I was only going to get my IUD replaced. So I started questioning her like, okay, um, literally an onslaught of emotions between confusion, frustration, um, fear, you know. Mm -hmm. And honestly, throughout our conversation, she couldn't really give me much answers other than the fact that Well, you know, it's based, you know, there's no known fact in the medical industry as to what causes fibroids. However, I do know that it's like kudzu. If I cut it away, 
you know, they can just grow back. That's why I'm recommending that you get a hysterectomy. And that just didn't sit well with me. And the reason why I say didn't sit well with me because my, my uterus is my womb. That's the soul to my body. That's the soul of my being. And to compare my soul to weeds, to kudzu that grows outdoors, that was very detrimental. And um, she was so cavalier about it. She's like, yeah, you're fine. You'll be back on your feet in no time. And I go, well, doc, I'm no doctor, but I do know that a hysterectomy, you're going to be off your feet at least six to 12, eight to 12 weeks, somewhere around there. Contingent upon several factors, you know, if there's any complications, if you're young, mm -hmm. if you, you know, you, you really take care of yourself as far as exercising and eating well, you may get back on your feet a little bit sooner. But typically it's, it's like eight to 12 weeks. And she goes, you know, you're young. You'll be back on your feet in no time. And I'm like, did you look at my chart? And I think at this time, Takiya, I believe I was probably 38, 39. I'm not young, <laughs> you know? So at the time, my boyfriend, uh, I got back home and I, go, and I was explaining to him what was going on. And I couldn't really give him, he was asking me so many questions. And the more questions he asked, the more upset I became because I didn't have the answers because she didn't give me any answers. He's like, what causes it? Where did it come from? Like, is it hereditary in your DNA? Is it based on what you eat? You know, is it sexually transmitted? Is, is it a, you know, what is it? And so um, I didn't have anything for him. So I started to do my own research. I went vegan, I went vegetarian. I started to eat for my blood type. I did yoga, I did Qigong. You name it, I probably tried it. I incorporated fresh fruits and veggies into my diet, do my own tonics and and, and smoothies, and um, I finally settled on uterine fibroid embolization, which is basically cutting off the blood supply to the fibroid. It's not surgery, it's an outpatient procedure. I was in and out about four hours, back on my feet in like a day and a half. I would not change it for the world. But the thing is, is that what made me start it was the day I posted on my personal Facebook page, unbeknownst to me, my boyfriend, my boyfriend at the time is now my husband, unbeknownst to me, when I was under the anesthesia, he took a video of me <laughs> and I was talking about something about the land of the Smurfs. It was hilarious. So I posted it on Facebook mm -hmm. for two reasons. Number one is show people, you know what? Hey guys, guess what? I got fibroids. I am overcoming them by putting myself first, but here's a little funny video to kind of shed light on it too. But you can also take charge of your life. And the amount of responses I got was so overwhelming. I cried. I cried because between the DMs that I received from women who I had not seen since high school. Now, mind you, my son is 27 years old. So that goes to tell you how long ago I graduated high school. <laughs> I mean, from the DMs, from, from the, the, the guys, you know, hey, that was for my sister, my mother, my daughter, my girlfriend, my fiance. Um, you know, my mother-in-law, my mother, my sister, five of my closest friends, the more I started talking about it, all these people started to come out and say that how much they've been struggling with fibroids. So when I received that response on social media and the telephone calls and the text messages, honestly, probably over 200 people within 24 hours, 24 to 40 hours, it took for my cousin to say, hey, um, did you see your Facebook? And I go, no, because I just put it out there. I wasn't really thinking much of it, right? 
She goes, you need to go back and take a look at it. And when I tell you the response was so overwhelming, I just cried. And I said to him, because I remember about a year prior to that, I remember sending him a text message. I said, babe, I feel like God is calling me to help people, but I don't know what it is. I have, And it's, it was just a really, just a, a random conversation we were having via text message. When that day happened, it was April of 2019 when I had my procedure done. I believe I posted on my Facebook page, like September of 2019. And um, I go, Oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. But how? <laughs> right? <laughs> so my girlfriend said, just start an Instagram page. I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't know much about Instagram. I honestly started it that day. I said, coming soon. And the rest is history. I had no idea what I was going to do when I first started it. But now I have a very clear, keen uh, vision and purpose. So that's how it all got started. <laughs> amazing, amazing. And you're saying a lot about, you know, the stories of others and the mm -hmm. overwhelming response of, of more than 200 people reaching out to you after you posted your own story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's interesting to hear you say that because the stories of yourself, the stories of others, they're mm -hmm. so similar. They're so, you know, you can literally find someone within your circle that yes. has been affected by fibroids at some Absolutely. point or another. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a pandemic for sure. Just like the mm -hmm. title of your, um, of your, of your Instagram page, it is definitely something that has, is reaching far beyond just mm -hmm. one person, two people, your family is in, and it's deeply rooted. Um, I know that there are a lot of African-American black women, women who are, are from, you know, black and indigenous backgrounds who suffer and deal with, you know, the fibroid pandemic. So have you seen that, you know, heavily? Would you agree with that statement? Oh, I agree with you a thousand percent. So statistically, you know, about 70% of women within their baby bearing ages will experience fibroids. Mm -hmm. Some may know that they have them. Some may have a horrible experience. Some may never know they, that they're even there. And when I say baby bearing ages, we're talking from age 15 to age 50. This is practically your whole entire life. Within that segment, 80%, are African-American women. Wow. That just... African, oh. yeah. Africa, it, give, it gives you chills. It, I just literally got mm -hmm. chills as you were saying mm -hmm. that. Voice Messages is designed to give listeners a way to offer spoken feedback directly to me, your host. You are important to me and your concerns and questions are too. So I want to hear from you. Click the link in the show profile and record a voice message for up to one minute. Then click send this message and your question or comment may be featured in an upcoming show. It's that simple. This week's feature review comes from Kiewa Glover. As a black woman and birth worker, this podcast has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. It's evidence-based, straight to the point, and engaging. I suggest every woman, especially Black women, 
partake in Takiya's mission to inform and empower all in pregnancy and postpartum care. It's worth it. Thank you, Ms. Glover, so much for a wonderful review. And I appreciate your support. Wow. African-American women, we are three times more likely to develop uterine fibroids than our white counterparts. Why it's do you, why do you think that is? You know, there's, there's several different reasons why, and this is what I found out through my research. So number one, stress and anxiety is a huge factor that contributes mm. to uterine fibroids. Our walk of life, the simple circumstances, the environment in which we are in which we grow in and, and live in, our circumstances, our walk of life is tremendously different than our white counterparts. We experience by far a lot more external and internal stressors than they do, just simply based on the fact that we were born as a black woman. Simple as that. And we can tie this back to racism, get into all that, but the facts are the facts. Number two, our diet. Again, being born as a black woman, birth to a black woman, um, there's a chance that the, the diet did not um, consist of natural fruits and fresh veggies and things of that nature. You know, I grew up, my mom frying pork chops and making collard greens and yams. Just look at it, you know, during Thanksgiving feasts or when you're having a great dinner at your house, we're frying fish. We're making candied yams. I mean, smothered, whatever you, smothered chicken or sick, whatever. You mm -hmm. know, our diet is laced with a ton of fat, a ton of sugar, a ton of carbs, and a ton of everything else. So that's another factor. And with that being said, the food that we eat, that we eat consists of a dominance of estrogen. Estrogen is like one of the main culprits. Um, well, a dominance of estrogen is one of the main culprits of uterine fibroids. So when you lump all those things together, that's one of the key reasons as to why black women suffer three times than what our white counterparts, you know? Yeah. And um, some of it is to no fault of our own, but you know, when you learn, you do right, you know? When you learn, mm -hmm. It's time to take take charge of your body and to right. help yourself heal. Absolutely. Right. And I, I also, you know, just to add to that, think that, you know, when it comes down to the diet, we have to look at our, our what food security looks like in our right. communities and what resources look like in our communities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, I, I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Um, oh, yeah. You you mm -hmm. can't you can walk around the corner and see a bodega and have all of the things that yeah. are not healthy to you, Absolutely. but you know, you're not going to find a, a good, wholesome whole foods or Wegmans no. or, you know, uh, foods, you know, uh, uh, sources that are organic and whole and all, mm -hmm. you're not going to find those in those yeah. communities. You're going to find a Popeye's chicken and you're going to find, you know, a million Chinese restaurants. But the reason why these things are tangible is because they're inexpensive, right? The food options are are there, but they're cheap. And so they're affordable. And so that also contributes. You're also going to see that, you know, the government doesn't put those types of, you know, businesses don't put those types of, you know, uh, programs and systems in place in those communities. So our food security, um, when it comes down to, you know, the black person is, is far less um, accessible than it is for our white counterparts. I agree with you. 
100%, mm-hmm. you know, and with that being said, you know, we're not going to find a nice smoothie places in our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find a really nice gyms in our neighborhoods. You, it just does not exist. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to go outside of your environment. Um, right. But because of that, you know, all the the DN, the this food component gets intertwined within our DNA. Mm-hmm. So you may hear some people say that it's hereditary. Yes and no. Mm-hmm. What's hereditary is the fact that it it you know um, it went down from my great grandmother, my great 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 grandmother to my grandmother. You know, I mean, generation to generation to generation of eating these certain types of foods, eating these recipes, preparing these recipes, and and living a sedentary type of lifestyle, not going hiking and just different things. It just was mm-hmm. not in the norm, you know, like you, I'm from upstate New York and you will see a bodega on the corner store. You either see that, a Chinese restaurant or Jamaican restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, unfortunately that's what we had to survive on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up eating healthy was eating three meals a day. It wasn't incorporating fresh fruits and veggies into your diet. I can tell you that much. Absolutely. It was the fact that you got to eat three meals a day. If you got three meals a day, you were doing, you were doing well as a family. You're absolutely right. And then you have to look at some of the, you know, those programs. Like as a child, I grew up on, on Medicaid and, and food stamps. Right. And, you know, are we getting really good food in, in those programs or, you know, WIC really providing what we need? You know, those were the things that, you know, we have to look at when we're looking at diet. And then to add to that as a, as a midwife, right. Who, who's out here talking about reproductive rights and justices and things like that. We are a community because of, you know, uh, wanting to have the ability to govern our bodies and be able to prevent pregnancies and things like that. We are overusing um, contraceptives in those ways where we're preventing pregnancy and we have these dominance of extra estrogen flowing in our bodies. Um, and so that's the other thing too, when you talk about estrogen dominance, it, there's a contributing factor when we're talking about birth control. Gosh, I- I'm so happy that you mentioned that. You're spot on. I mean, about the weight program, you know, I understand the reason why it's developed, you know, but I too grew up on what they call government cheese and, and the huge Girl. big block. And it's like, what's in yes. this thing? Like you can make a grilled cheese sandwich and leave it on the counter on the countertop and it'll probably last for about four months. You know, <laughs> hard as a brick, but it would not decompose, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, the powdered milk, you know, yep, it's, all it's of just, it. you know, the eggs, where they really get these eggs from. But at either rate, I mean, you're right. That really did, you know, um, it really impact us tremendously in getting into the, the birth control, oh my gosh, you know, women don't realize that if your doctor prescribes you a low estrogen um, birth control, whether it's a pill or the IUD, like how I had, that doesn't mean that it that there is not a dominance of estrogen within your body. That's it. Mm-hmm. Some women believe, some women do not realize that even if your progesterone level is normal, if your estrogen is higher, that's considered a dominance of estrogen. Mm-hmm. And you know, that even leads me to the sanitary products that we use, right? Because with birth control, you have to consider, our, our, is your menstrual gonna, is your menstrual cycle going to be impacted? Mm-hmm. So sanitary products, you know, I only use premium sanitary napkins. 
I do not purchase my sanitary napkins from any store. Um, if, I believe they should be called unsanitary napkins, honestly, because they literally send these things through a bleaching process, a six to seven stage bleaching process. They use recycled components, recycled plastic, recycled cotton, you know, and then they, they, they mark the box that says 100% cotton. Yeah, the top layer maybe, but what else mm -hmm. is going on underneath there? Where do you get all these other, you know, what, what additional chemicals are they lacing it with to help absorb your menstrual? Yeah. You know, and what um, chemicals are being absorbed back into the body? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. I mean, it literally sits at the base of your womb, whether it's via tampon, which is literally kissing your womb, <laughs> literally, you know, don't want to be graphic, but it is. Or if it's a sanitary napkins, it's at the base of your womb. And it's like, and I actually said this um, previously in another conversation, it's like feeding your uterus a slow death. Because the more you use these products, the more you need to use them. It's like mm -hmm. a effect. And women with fibroids, the more you use these unsanitary napkins, the heavier your bleeding is going to be. If you're mm -hmm. focusing on your, your exercise and your diet, you know, the chemicals that you expose to your body, it will get worse. Nine mm -hmm. times out of 10. I don't believe anything's 100%, but nine times out of 10, it's going to get worse. So it's up to you to, again, put yourself back into the driver's seat of your life you know, and, and stop the silent suffering. There's a community out there for you. Absolutely. And I, I'm so grateful that you talked about putting yourself in back into the driver's seat because a large part of this podcast is talking about being a savvy healthcare consumer and, you know, being able to be, you know, in charge and have that self-determination to, you know, exist in, in mm -hmm. your health and wellness. But then also when you have to access healthcare, that you're doing it from a position of power and strength. So mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that you, you mentioned that. Um, you know, a bit about my story. I had a hysterectomy at 30, 31 or 32 years old. And I'm so grateful that I had a son at 20 that mm -hmm. I can say I'm a mother. Um, I had not only polyps, endometriosis, but I also have fibroids. Um, and so from the, the age of 12, when I first started my menses, I remember, I don't remember ever having a period where I wasn't doubled over in pain, mm -hmm. lying in the fetal position, mm -hmm. um, sick as a dog. I absolutely could not understand why periods even needed to exist at a young age, because mm -hmm. I remember being in pain every month and just begging my mother to kill me. That was what I remember laying in bed, crying and crying, missing days of school because mm -hmm. I had this pain. And so my womanhood was not something that I welcomed. My period wasn't something I welcomed. And I only got a period of respite or reprieve when I became a mother. When I got pregnant, I had my son. Of course, I had, you know, 40 weeks of, of no period. So that was a joy. And then after having him, um, I remember not having as harsh of cramping when I had my menstrual cycle. And, you know, it was cramping nonetheless, but it was something I can tolerate and I can function. Now, some people probably would still be doubled over in pain, right? But to me, it was tolerable. And it mm -hmm. wasn't until I got into my uh, late 20s, early 30s 
that I started having breakthrough bleeding, bleeding in between periods. I started having the pain started to come back again, um, really. But this time it took a total uh, like came back with a vengeance. It came back with with a vengeance. It was terrible to the point where my son would hear me weeping in bed at night and didn't understand why I was crying, thought I was upset, but I was crying because I was in pain. Not one, not an aproxen, Motrin, uh, mm-hmm. you know, narcotic would even touch the level of pain. Um, throwing up, you know, just in pain and even throughout the entire period. So it wasn't even just the beginning, you know, the first day, some people have increased cramping on the first day. Mine Mm -hmm. lasted until the end, almost like my uterus was trying to wring out every bit of blood. That's how I felt just, just writhing in pain. Um, And it wasn't until I got to a point where I am, you know, used to teach um, nursing and I was in my classroom, um, standing at the, the front of the classroom teaching. I was on my period. I had to wear a tampon and a maxi pad. Uh, and I had breakthrough bleeding in the middle of a class. I could feel it coming out clots. And I literally had to excuse myself as to not embarrass myself. Um, because if I would have waited a moment later, I would have had a mess. Um, and so it was at that point where I said to myself, I have to do something. And, you know, my first instinct was not to, um, get fibroid, you know, embolization or to find out what my options were to look at my diet. My first option was get this uterus out of me. Cause I'm tired of it. I've been dealing with it my entire life. Just get it out. I don't want it anymore. That was cause I had this horrible relationship with my uterus. The only thing that my uterus gave me was my son, right? And I, I didn't even think at that point in time, I wasn't even in a relationship. I wasn't married yet. I, at that point, didn't even think about what would happen once I met, you know, my future husband, if he would want, I could care less. I wanted that thing out of me because I was in so much pain for the majority of my life. So I had this, you know, exploratory laparoscopic hysterectomy and my, you know, um, uh, doctor came back to me and she said, you know, your uterus was just full of this, this, and she showed me pictures and I could not believe it. And actually prior to me getting the hysterectomy, I, I went because I was having this breakthrough bleeding and they found the polyp. So I had the polyp removed as a procedure and I thought that would solve some of the problem. Oh, I had this polyp. So the polyp was the cause of all my pain. And that was what I thought. And, and at the time I was a midwife, so I knew this information, I knew this stuff, but I, I got to a point where I just said, you know what, take it out, take it out. Um, because it was, it was a, a relationship of, of, of pain. And I think that could be where a lot of people are. They're at a point where they're just so tired of dealing with this pain month to month to month that they're, they just want it out. And I think this is why we also have an increased rate of of, of uh, hysterectomy uh, related to fibroids and other factors like endometriosis and things like that. Yeah, Takia, thank you for sharing your story. I, I was not aware <laughs> that that's, um, that's very profound. You know, I, I have a cousin of mine, I remember in middle school, your same exact situation as you, she would have to um, call out of school the first couple of days of her menstrual, she would literally be doubled over um, because of her period cramps. And I couldn't really understand it. You mm-hmm. know, the older I got, the more my body changed and I developed fibroids, I know 100%. And to your point about breakthrough bleeding, that was me. You know, I would have to leave work 
because I had an accident and all I did was simply sneeze or cough or laugh or literally just did nothing. And I too used to wear a tampon and a pad, a, a super duper tampon, mm-hmm. duper pad. And it's like, you know, when I first received the diagnosis of, had, of having uterine fibroids, my menstrual wasn't that bad at all. Probably about five days on average, five to six days, maybe about six to nine months after the diagnosis, all hell broke loose, all hell broke loose. And, um, Still lasted about maybe six, maybe seven days, seven to eight days, but um, the bleeding was too much. I couldn't take it. It was unbearable. I would get um, dizzy, get lightheaded, brain fog. And um, I remember one day, I'll never forget this. I remember one day in particular, I had to leave work because I had an accident. Thank goodness I had on black pants that day. Called my husband. I'm hysterical. He's like, what are you saying? Yeah, he was trying to calm me down. What are you saying? What are you saying? I'm like, I'm done. I cannot take it. I, I won't do. I can't do this anymore. So I called one of the one of the doctors here in Atlanta, who I had a um, a uh, a consultation with, and I said, "Look, how much does it cost to perform my surgery without insurance? I don't have time for you to wait to submit the prior authorization and for them to request the medical records. I need you to put me in your schedule like this week." Mm. They're like, "Well, you know, we normally don't do that, but um." It's going to cost about $50,000. I thought about it for about two seconds. And I said, I was just joking. <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, although I was really serious, you know, but reality set in and, and I said, okay, let me just take a step back and do a little bit more research. And um, that's when I finally settled on UFE with Dr. Littman here in Atlanta. But I will tell you to your point, a lot of women who have the same exact experience as you do, definitely a hysterectomy, you know? Um, but where I struggle is where your doctor makes a hysterectomy the very first and only um, solution of eliminating mm-hmm. uterine fibroids. And that's, it's just not necessary. You mm-hmm. know, 60% of hysterectomies that are performed are unnecessary. You know, so I always tell women to do your research, you know, take inventory of your body. If you are having these, you know, fainting spells, if you have to get blood transfusions, if you are literally, quote unquote, incapacitated for the whole entire duration of your menstrual, if you're bleeding on end for 45 days straight, you know, if you have no type of balance within your lifestyle, whether it's work life, work private, whatever it is, yeah, in that sense, a hysterectomy definitely may be for you. But there are several other things out there that women can consider. If I were you, I probably would have definitely done the same exact thing. I would like to believe that it's probably been the best thing since sliced bread in your life, huh? Yes, ma'am. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Good for you. Are you enjoying the podcast? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. The Savvy Black Birther podcast is made possible by listeners like you. You may support the podcast directly by clicking the link at the end of the show notes. Your support helps me to keep bringing you real, relevant, and relatable content. Thank you so much for supporting this work. Now back to the show.
So what other things, you know, you began telling us about things that a woman can do to sort of, you know, fight back and, you know, live with this diagnosis or, you know, figure out how to uh, navigate with this? What, what are some other things that we, you would suggest? Yeah. So number one, I would recommend um, knowing your family medical history, having conversations with grandma, with your mom, with your aunties, with your older sisters, have conversations to see what's has, what has transpired in the family. We all have family secrets. It's time to put that to the side and let's talk about it. Let's have girl talk, you know? Um, ask, you know, what, what have your menstruals been like? Have you ever had surgery? Because ironically, when I received the diagnosis, never realized that my mother-in-law had a hysterectomy and, and my husband didn't even know. He had no idea. Um, it took for me to have to to her and she's like, oh yeah, that happened to me. And and for my husband's godmother and for my mother and my sister and my niece. And you know, I can go on and on and on and on and on. But have those conversations with the women in your family. And the reason why I say that is because the earlier you're able to receive your diagnosis, the better it would be for you. Meaning that you can minimize the number of fibroids that develop on your uterus. You can um minimize the size, the growth, you know. Um, so definitely have those conversations. Number two, get to know your body. Pay attention. Your body tells you. For me, like a lot of people would say, hindsight is twenty twenty. I have no idea why I did not realize that I had fibroids. You know, for for one, I didn't even know what fibroids were. I heard of the term. I didn't know if, if it if it was fibroid or fibroids or plural. I had no idea what it was, but I did hear the term before. But, you know, I was always tired, always tired. But again, I chopped it up to the fact that I was getting older. Um, my, my, my face, I had really bad adult acne, just broke out so bad. My nails, my hair, my skin, you know, um, take inventory of your body. Your body tells you. And the last thing that I would suggest is put yourself first. Don't wait. Act sooner and, and do research, you know, while you're trying to get to that point, rather than just sitting there contemplating, do your research. You know, I have consultations with women often who they're going in for their procedure, whether it's a minimally invasive mm. procedure or major surgery. And I'll ask them basic questions. They can't even answer. They have no idea. It could be something as simple as, you know, well, are you supposed to fast before you go in just in case something happens? Like, well, I don't know, you know, what about the post-care? Do you have to wear a certain type of attire, maybe a gown or a dress or a low-cut underwear, high-cut underwear? Can't even give me answers. So why are you going under the knife again? You can't answer those basic questions? Do your research. I'm not saying to challenge the doctors. What I am saying is to put yourself first and to simply, you know, do your research. So those would be the key items that I would suggest. Absolutely. I, I'm so grateful for that, that you're saying these things because people first need to know how to diagnose themselves. And and when I say diagnose yourself, I don't mean that you need to come up with the uh, the medical term for what you're feeling, but you know if you're nauseous, you know if you're tired, you know if your body aches, you know if you have a lot of pressure, 
you know, all of those things, you know, so those are things that you can communicate to a healthcare professional. And it really helps people like me who are sitting on the other side. We need you to be a good historian of what you're feeling because it helps us to better understand the problem that we're trying to diagnose. So if you're not a good historian and everything you say is, I don't know, then it's going to be a little harder for us as clinicians to really understand and try to figure out and problem solve and figure out what it is that you are experiencing medically. So it's so important. I'm so glad that you said that. And then in terms of, you know, looking at the, uh, the relationship between you and your healthcare provider, you have to know these things before you are putting yourself under uh, the knife and, and under the charge of another person. By, by all means, we have to be completely um, informed and ready and accepting and understanding of what we're experiencing and what's going to happen to us before we give any person in this world charge over us. You know, um, I don't care if that person has 50,000 letters behind their name. They've received the Nobel Peace Prize. They are like top of the line scientists. I don't give a damn who they are. Here's the deal. Nobody knows you better than you. Nobody's in charge of you, but you. And so if you know what's going on and if you're aware, then you can say, yes, expert, you may do these things, you know? Absolutely. And so I'm grateful that you have, have pointed that out because so many people have this blind trust. We've been um, conditioned as healthcare consumers to have a blind trust in the medical community. Now, I'm not saying the trust should not be there, but it shouldn't be blind. You know, that that's that's profound because, you know, back in the day, what the doctor said went, you know, what it mm -hmm. goes and people oftentimes never really question their doctor. If they write your prescription, you would go to a doctor, they write you four prescriptions. Oh, yeah, I see this. And you just go get it filled and take it. Not really understanding what the side effects may be or how you, whether you should or should if it's if it agrees with your body chemistry or anything. So to your point, while I'm not, I'm not saying to challenge these doctors, but do your homework and come question ready. When you have those doctor visits, be prepared with your questions because understand these doctors only have a certain amount of face time with you. So you need to hit every aspect as quick as possible and hopefully they will be able to address it thoroughly to a point to where you feel comfortable and you have all the information you need to move forward in whatever your decision-making process is. But it's so critical, so critical to do your research and, and to ask questions because no one's gonna advocate for you more than what you're gonna advocate for yourself. And that doctor may be amazing, may be the top doctor in the state of Georgia or either in the country who performs these procedures, whatever it may be but that doesn't mean that it's suitable for you. So have a conversation with your doctor and your family members, you know, your close-knit friends, anybody who really cares about you and that you care about their opinion, because that's really gonna help you determine what may be best for you. So um, don't go into it blindly, just don't. You owe it to yourself. Absolutely. Ashe, right on. Amen. Yes, girl. Hallelujah. All of those girl, things. Yes. Everything. Hallelujah. Yes. yes, Lord. Whatever. Yes. All of that. 
everything you just said. So I am so grateful for you and the work you're doing and the the words of wisdom that you have spoken today. I am I am extremely grateful. Can you tell us how we may follow you, how we may support your work? How could people uh, get with the, the fibroid pandemic? Absolutely. <laughs> so you can find me on Instagram at the fibroid pandemic. I have a private Facebook group um, called The Fibroid Pandemic. There are two on Facebook. Um, they're both me, but I only check one of them. For some reason, when Facebook purchased Instagram, it kind of like migrated, automatically created this Fibroid Pandemic page for me, which was not what I wanted. So I do have a private Facebook group that um, has the, the face logo on, um, on Facebook. And then I also have a YouTube channel called The Fibroid Pandemic. Um, the, I, the majority of my interaction is on Facebook. I'm sorry, is on Instagram though. Uh, and I'm also on Clubhouse under Fibroid Pandemic. You can shoot me an email by clicking the link in my bio and Instagram. Turn on notifications because I have a lot of really great events coming up. Um, I can't speak on it just yet because the um, the art is yet to be ready. <laughs> like we talked about earlier, I need somebody to really help me do this. I wish I could clone myself, but um, I'm super duper excited about these events that I have coming up. So definitely turn on notifications to check me out. Thank you so much. We will definitely be sure to watch what you're doing and to follow and support your work. I appreciate your time today. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of The Savvy Black Birther. Make sure to visit my website, Sakina Health, where you can find evidence-based information, resources, and more. You can also follow me on Instagram at Sakina underscore health. That's S-A-K-I-N-A. And while you're at it, if you found value in this show, I'd appreciate a rating or review. And don't forget to tell that good friend so that this content can reach many more Black birthing families. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in for the next episode. Be informed, be equipped, and be savvy Black birthers.